Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you people, it's uh, Easter this Sunday. It's Easter. And I, I have to go Easter shopping. And it's funny because, you know, I like to give Joanne a basket. But I've noticed how different holidays are. Like, I went to the 99 cent store the other day. And there's still a shitload of Easter candy left. But if you go to, like, the Halloween store, like, two weeks before there's nothing there. St. Patty's Day, there's nothing there. So I have to go, and I just like to get little stuff, and you know, because it's Easter, and I, you know, it's not really that big of a holiday. Like, there's a one commercial, the Cadbury commercial, that's been on for years with a different animal saying, you know, the Easter bunny. But what I noticed is, I wonder if kids really celebrate Easter, because I remember when I found out that there wasn't Easter, we were coming home from a vacation, and I was older. I, I think I've I'm not like two years older after the other kids. And we're coming home from a family vacation. We're going somewhere. We're somewhere. And my mom stopped and my dad pulled over. They stopped at a little store. And I saw her coming out with sports magazines. She didn't know I saw them. And I love sports magazines because they'd always give me like candy and a present. And that's when I found out there wasn't an Easter, bat, uh, Easter bunny. I was somewhere like in Maryland. And I saw it and I went, there's no Easter bunny. My mom said, yes, there is. And I said, mom, don't lie to me. So that's what happened. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a very talented guy, a very nice guy. He seems. I just met him. He seems very nice. It's Charlie Coons. How you doing, Charlie? I'm doing really great. Thank you so much. I can now drop the facade of being any kind of nice guy. Exactly. I made it. I made it through the intro, and now I can just be be my true self. Well, you, it, it's funny because you you know you, you were running a little late, and, and you left a message because a lot of times people don't leave a message, and you just sound so nice. And, and he's like, "No, no. How did you get where? How did you get lost?" I, uh, you know, it's just a classic sort of idiot thing is, um, I, I've been, I've been living in LA for about 11 years. So I'm like, I know everything about LA. I know the streets, whatever. So when I saw Burbank Boulevard off the 101, I immediately just went, I know exactly where that is. I don't need to look that up. And I got off on Barham Boulevard and I was like, (laughs) and then I ended up in an intersection. I was like, well, this is definitely not it where, you know, it's that, uh, Verdugo and Olive intersection where 8,000 streets are all at the same time. And, and you don't know. it's the longest traffic light ever. Right. You sit there and you're going, okay. And then the one changes and you go, okay. And then the other, and you're like, can I just go? And you're just sitting there and there's like, there's a Starbucks right there. And yeah. then there's always like people crossing. And there's like, the, right across there, there's a gym that has been through like three different ownerships. <laughs> and it's like, I sit there and I, I hate that. I hate that thing. I'm going to change my story. I was at that gym. Okay. That's what <laughs> I was at that gym on that crazy intersection. Um, but yeah. So I got to ask you, you know, you grew up, you grew up in uh, California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bay area. Okay. So now, now growing up as a kid, did, when did you start? No, you wanted to get into acting. Cause you know, it, it's, it's always different how people, some people are littler kids and, and, you know, and I always also think when you grow up in a city, like, like the Bay area, mm-hmm. you know, there's such an enriched sports area, you did know, 49ers and the giants. So I think as a kid, you get distracted sometimes because I grew up in Philadelphia and you got you know, the teams. Right. I mean, were you a sports kid as a kid or did you like acting or what I was, was it? I was kind of both. I mean, you're right about the Bay Area. I mean, I I think, and it's got to be close if this isn't true, the, um, that the Bay Area has the most like per capita sports teams. A's, Giants, oh, yeah. Niners, Raiders, Warriors, Shark. Like we have a ton of teams. Um, and I actually, the high school that I went to was uh, in the East Bay called De La Salle. And uh, they're a big football high school. Um, we had a winning streak of 151 games in a row over like 14 years or something wow. like that. So many NFL stars came out of that school. Um, and I played one year of JV football. And that was about as far as I could go. <laughs> I, I mean, just the competition level was so, so high. So um, I went from there. And I had done 
you know, just school plays in elementary school and things like that. And um, so I went from the football and I played little league and things like that. But I went one year of football in high school to theater because and I took it as a class to get like an easy credit. And then I just sort of like, you know, it's the same thing that happens to everybody as they get a little bit of attention and decide to run with it. But my favorite thing on the earth is um, when you go to my high school's Wikipedia page and they have notable alumni. You're one of them? I'm the I'm one of them, which is really awesome. But I'm the only person who's not on a professional sports team out of like 30 guys. <laughs> See, that, that's so funny. And I wouldn't have known about that. But when my, I went to Cherry Hill East and, and this guy, Aaron Kramer, has kept up our page. Great. You know, and, right. and like we had a graduating class of 840. And he's found some of them, but he just wrote notable alumni. I'm not one of them. But then we're sitting there going, well, That's they, for- lame. they forgot. You know, they forgot that there was um, well, Oral Hershiser, of course. You know, oh, cool. You know, and then they forgot like two guys. One guy played for the 49ers named Pete Kugler and another right. guy. And I'm looking. And then I found out there's like some huge guy you know, who recently is playing Phantom of the Opera. His name is James Barber. He's this thing. And he was two years younger. I was like, wow. And my buddy says, you should be on there. I said, nah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not. I you know, but, <laughs> but I never knew even though they had noted along the line. Now, who are some of the football players you're mentioned with? Because that's cool. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see. Um, the big one lately, he was a couple years ahead of me, was uh, Maurice Jones-Drew. Okay. Who was, um, I think he was second to Reggie Bush in the Heisman. Right. He was in, he went to UCLA. Yeah, UCLA. Um, he's actually back uh, coaching a little bit at our, at our high school, which is pretty cool. Um, let's see. No, no, I'm it's putting, right. now I'm put on the spot. No, Demetrius Williams, a bunch of Amani Toomer. Okay, well I've heard of this. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's a very known school. Yeah. So now, now when you were a kid, when you watched TV, what did did you really take an affinity to any certain shows? Like some people say we watched SNL, some people say this. I mean, or were you just a kid who watched everything? It wasn't. I mean, I I did the the classic progression. I mean, you know. When it when it was Ninja Turtles age, it was Ninja Turtles. When it was Power Rangers age, it was Power Rangers. So I didn't I didn't gravitate toward anything really in particular at first. But my my relationship with television was always that I had to have a costume change. Okay. So like so when Ninja Turtles came on, and I knew every, I knew everything was in the house. I had to get the pasta strainer for my head, the laundry basket for my back. I would tie pillows around my. Uh, elbows so that i would be totally ready for like you ninja were, action you were committed you were, I was you totally were committed committing as a kid and then after that if indiana jones came on i had to go get my jacket and my hat and my little like rubber whip and then your mom's probably like would you stop leaving the shit around the house yeah exactly <laughs> i had a superman cape that i was you know 15 when it finally went the way of the dodo but was still <laughs> devastated kind of by it it was a it was a sheet it wasn't anything yeah. cool <laughs> no it's like it, but was, it was like in tatters it was a piece of felt mm-hmm. it was so you're, you're going through high school you start the acting now it comes to you have to pick a college now at what point do you sit there and decide you want to go to college for acting or and what do you how do you decide your college choice uh well i went into college for uh film production okay um i had I really enjoyed acting in high school, but it felt very extracurricular. Um, so, and you know how high schools are, where they kind of uh, people form themselves into cliques. So, like a certain kind of kid goes into theater, and a certain kind of kid plays lacrosse, and a certain kind of kid's a swimmer. Um, so, I think that was a big part of it. Was there was also a safe place for a lot of people. Um, which was fantastic, but wasn't necessarily about the acting. So it was like, okay, this is cool. Um, but what I really love are film and movies. And I think I'm okay at this acting thing, but that's not it. It's really, I want to make movies. So um, I went to Loyola Marymount over by uh, 
LAX on the west side. The for, Mary Mound, yeah. My, yeah. Uh, they have a, a, a high school, sister high school, I believe, in New York City. Yeah, that, yeah. That my niece goes to. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Crazy. So, yeah. Um. So, yeah. So, I went and, I went and did that for two years and... And then that wasn't right, and I got pulled back into the student theater there. And, and that was where the acting felt like these are people that came from all over, that went to this school to be theater majors, to, you know, actually stay there and do it, and, and it and it felt great. What did you think didn't feel right about the production part? I mean, just because something, you went in there, I mean, just you were just not clicking, you were, like, not being fulfilled? It was, you know, I think uh, later on, I only did two years, um, and the way that the program was set up was that you couldn't use all of the facilities available to you until in terms of filmmaking until you were a senior so that's like um you know recorded sound full editing color correction actor you know all that kind of stuff it was always um this is such a boring story (laughs) it it was always um more it would put you into boxes that would allow you to think your way out of which was really interesting so they would give you a camera like a little digital uh, camcorder and they would say, okay, your project is to do five minutes of unedited footage in a single story. And I go, okay, that's cool. And the next project was two minutes of edited footage. And it was just, it wasn't like getting what? to use everything and collaborate with a bunch of people. You had to do it all yourself. And it was much more teaching you how to use the machines Okay. than it was... Let's get together with a writer and break a story, and you know, talk about how we can tell your vision visually and and that kind of thing. It was very, it felt very singular. So when I found theater, it felt very uh, much like more like a community of creative people talking about stories rather than lights. Now, now, did you start getting on into the productions then? When once you got into that, I mean, were you were you cast in productions? Yeah, I. Um, what I the weirdest thing because I didn't know that you could audition for plays if you weren't a theater major, so I thought that I was done with I was done with acting, I was retired at 18, and um, I was like I gave the world all I all I could give, um, and I was walking back to my dorm one day and I saw this giant stack of flyers for a play called The Marriage of Bet and Boo, and it said in really big letters auditions open to all majors, and I just didn't know that I didn't have much connection with the department or anything. And um, then I walked into my apartment and I realized that I had the entire stack in my hand. And I just sort of went, well, that's a strange thing to do for somebody who doesn't want to act anymore. (laughs) That's odd. Um, So I went to the audition and it just, you know, became a became a thing. And I joined the department later. And um, I'm a product more of mentors than than anything. I think if I if I had if I was left alone, if I was insulated i would um i probably would have quit like a hundred times who were you who's your mentors in college i mean was it was it an upperclassman that found you or just something you knew or something you confided in or a teacher i did i did the one student production uh for, in the student theater like the marriage of bet and boo and then um the dean of the school at the time had come to see it and he was writing a play with a student called this place on third avenue about a bar in the 30s in new york so they were looking for all the men that they could find and the department was mostly women um, at the time. So he came to see the show and I'm this, you know, stocky kid with a beard. And have um, you always had the beard since I was seven, yeah. since I was seven years old, <laughs> I've had the beard. I, I saw some pictures of the outfit. <laughs> yeah. but back then you were sporting a beard. 
In college, yeah. I was. Yeah, because cool. I went to a I went to a Christian Brothers Catholic high school, so okay, I had to be totally clean shaven. So the second you leave a place like that, the hair gets long, <laughs> the beard comes in. Like that's exactly what you do first thing. Um, so long story short, we did that show. He just needed bodies, basically, uh, male bodies to do anything, and. So I went and did that, and it was the dean of the school that was like, I think you really got something. I think you should. He's like, I know it's none of my business. I'm not your dad, but you should switch your focus and come and do this. And then um, and then I met the guy who's my manager today. He taught a like one-off class there and saw me, and he's like, I want to represent you, and then off to the races. So you had a manager when you were still in college? Uh, just after college, because he taught he taught the second semester senior class. See, that's that's got to be a great feeling though, because it's something it you know great. you come out and all of a sudden you're going you know you're you're running around, especially when you're young, because it's so it's so you don't know you don't know like you know it's 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 such a business and you don't know like some guy. I mean, I always see the stories where people are like, yeah, I heard someone talking. I paid for this manager. You don't pay for a manager, you right? Know, you don't you don't. It's like. They make money off, you know, you when you They're get work. They're supposed to. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. that's what's funny because you get lucky that, you know, because some people, because you're young. You don't know. You, you're you, The last thing you're thinking of is, I just got through college. I, I don't right. know. I don't know anything about the business because they don't teach you the business. Because right. Because they, they sit there and they go, they teach you the craft, which they should. You know, when you go to, <clears throat> when I went to school in business, I had a degree in business. They mm-hmm. didn't teach you about how to do an interview after. They just taught you. <laughs> Here's what you got to do and, the math. And yeah. it doesn't even mean shit because you're like, oh, economics, I'll never use that. Right. So you graduate and luckily you're in school in LA. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you decide just to stay here. Which was just, which was just happen. I mean, I don't know if you call it happenstance, but I did want to be in the industry. Um, how it ended up being acting was one way. So that's what brought me to LA in general and made me more interested in going to, um, to LMU. But yeah, but then I just stayed, and uh, the guy, this guy, Steve Rodriguez, my manager, um, was teaching a career development class. Okay. And so it was second semester, senior year, it was the last class you take, that basically exactly what you said. They said, okay, you've got all the craft that we can give you in this amount of time. Here's what it's going to be like out there when you step out in like two months. And it was full of really disheartening news. (laughs) Um, But the way that I... I like being tested. I like seeing what's real and what's not. And, you know, after four years, I started to feel a little bit um, insulated in that experience. It's like, okay, I've got a reputation here. It's cool. I've got a lot of friends. It's great. And everybody's really supportive. But none of us really know if any of us are any good, really, because we all do things together. Right. And and eventually you become a big team, too. So you kind of know when a play comes around, um, that guy's going to get that part, you're going to get that part, she's going to get that part, and we're all going to flesh each other out. It's like, you know, putting on a show. But um, but I was excited about having that, like, okay, step into the world where nobody cares about you and, and see if you can sink or swim. I think actors, especially good ones or ones that want to be good, I think question whether or not they're good all the time. Well, and, think, and they seek out trying to find out, which I think is the interesting part. Well, I think, yeah, I think because it's something that, you know, yeah, you have to know. It's like, especially with acting, it's not like, you know, it's stand-up. If, if you do stand-up, you know if the crowd laughs or not. Right. Acting, you don't really know if you, especially for TV and movie, because right. it's such a different vehicle. You know, on stage, you know, you can tell, you, you have to remember everything. You know, you have to sit there in a crowd, you know, 
you can get a vibe of the crowd likes right. it or not, and you can get a vibe by your other cast members if you suck. Right. I mean, let's be honest. If you know, if, there, if someone because you said you're a team, but TV, yeah, you're right. You're going out there and just if you're acting, you can you never really get that validation because especially if you if you're if you're a big star who stinks, no right. director is going to sit there and go. Oh, that's stunk. I mean, now if you know if you're De Niro and you screwed up a line, Scorsese's gonna go, "Hey, Robert, do this." But when you're, right. I'm sure you get a lot of kids—not kids, but people just graduate college who directing TV shows—and mm-hmm. then they sit there and they got to deal with someone. You know, you, how do you sit there and say to someone, "No, no, 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 do that again." Yeah, you know, when you, yeah, when you have an Oscar, you know, right, right. No, it's it's true. I, I've never really understood why. I guess I get it. I, I guess there's a, a reputation that actors have before they even kind of walk into a room. Of being, regardless of who they are, of just being actors, um, which I think if you ask most people, I think the assumption would be temperamental. And uh, so I think people are a little worried about that. And I, I try to cut through as much smoke blowing as I can and be like, you know, okay, we can sit here for five minutes and have you try to think of a way to tell me politely that I suck at acting. Right. <laughs> or we can just skip that part and talk about how we're going to make this scene better and what I can do and all that kind of stuff. So that's the stuff that I appreciate, but I think um, – and they they don't want to. They don't – They don't. especially when it's – you know, you have representation and agents and managers that um, – my team is very great, but um, a lot depends on you. And a lot depends on your emotional state on any given day because you need to be focused and you need to be working and things like that. And um, so I think people get – trepidatious around actors and telling them that um things aren't going well right but but it's about but i but it should be about making the scene and making the project and as a director as a writer you need as much from me as i need from you so we can make this all together i'm only doing one piece of it exactly so now now when you get out into the real world what do you do now because you 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 have a manager but still it's like you're still a newbie you know yeah and, and you're probably like i mean you're not used to like Saying they're going, you know, hey, uh, go down to get an audition. You have an audition in Culver City, and if, I don't know where you live, but I right. always crack up. It's like you sit there and go, okay, it's you know, uh, you know, I've never been to an audition. It's going to be easy. And and one thing I always laugh is people don't know is when they say your audition is at one. If you find out they're auditioning from twelve to three, you can go into twelve. Like no, yeah, one, totally. no one ever sits there and goes, totally get out. It's, it's all signed in. And then you, that's when I first ever did an audition. I'm like, wait, wait, I'm at twelve thirty. Wait, there's like eighty seven people in front of me. What time is your interview? Oh, my interview, uh, my interview's at one. Well, wait, what are you doing here? I'm a, you know. Yeah, no, I just had that conversation like two days ago with an actor, which was really weird. Um, that exact conversation is like, you know, you can kind of go whenever. Um, and like you said, now they're going to, they're not going to turn you away, um, (laughs) because you might be the guy, Exactly. you know, they're going to see everybody they can. Um, yeah. When you get out, I mean, you just, I was really lucky. It's hard to, it's hard to play the woe is me struggling actor card because I was really lucky and, um, I, I got this representation. So they started sending me out on auditions which is a lot more than than actors straight out of college can even ask for commercials and movies and tv or just everything or what mostly commercials the big thing was um i didn't have my sag card and it was right at the tail end i think of the writer's strike so the writer's strike happened and rippled through the whole industry in a way that agents were cutting actors like they couldn't afford to keep everybody on because there wasn't as much work because the act the writers were were gone so everybody was kind of downsizing when i was just getting into it 
and I didn't have a credit. I didn't have anything. So I would go in for uh, commercials and co-star, like one-line bits on TV. And um, about six months out of school, I got this movie called Rubber about a killer tire, like car tire, that animates itself and rolls around the desert and blows people's heads up. And it was the script was like 60 pages long. Which is not even a movie. No, <laughs> it's just <laughs> That's I, I held it. I was like, this is just not long enough to be a movie. Everybody understands that, right? Um, and then it went to it went to Cannes like six months after we shot it. I only did three days on it, and then six months later, I was in the south of France, which is you were there. Yeah, they brought you, and you now you played. If I'm reading your thing, you played film buff Charlie. That was your name. Yeah, yeah. So you they gave you, and they even spelled Charlie like you just spell it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. So so you're in it now. Did you have a big part? Mm, sort of. I um, part of the movie is that this uh, this tire rolls around and kills people, but it's got a Greek chorus kind of audience member type thing. There's a group of people that are about, you know, we we fudge the distance far away, looking through binoculars, watching all of the action as the tire goes around. And the whole movie, I think, the director is uh, Quentin Dupont. It has never given. Uh, uh, an explanation of what this movie is about. It's the weirdest movie ever. He's a French house DJ. Okay. And like, it's all new wave. We've done like four movies together and I have not understood a single one of them. Um, but my, my feeling of it was that the tire would keep destroying as long as audience members were watching it. So to me, it was a metaphor about bad movies in the package of a bad movie. Like it was supposed to be a B movie. Right. Um, and the whole upshot of it was to me was that, um, as long as we keep watching bad movies, they'll continue to exist. So I was one of those people. I had a, it was a fun part and I, I just made friends with the guys and ended up uh, in camp. What was that like? I mean, you're sitting there, I mean, you're just out of school I mean, you're thinking about it, you know, it, you just out of school, mm-hmm. you, you have your manager, you get a part in a, in a movie that probably when you, you took it, you're probably thinking, Okay, this is the weirdest freaking thing ever. The only reason I got that audition, and I've talked to people before, uh, since then, in the six or seven years since then, that are like, I remember that movie, and that came across my desk, and I said I didn't want to do it, because how could a movie that be 60 pages long about a tire? And I was like, right? So I only got to audition for that movie because nobody else would. <laughs> nobody else understood what it was. And I didn't care, because I was auditioning for anything. So what was it like going to con? I mean, you know, you're, you're. I mean, it must be amazing as a young kid. I was 21. So I mean, what, what? I mean, what do you? What did you do with con? Just did you walk around with your mouth open like, oh my god, there's such and such? Or... Yeah, I, I, um, I had a really great friend. The reason I got to go was I uh, was working with a Shakespeare company while I was in college called Will and Company, and it was run by a guy named Colin Cox, and he is a really great uh, theater director. And when we found out we got into Can, he, I was working at his theater at the time, and he was like. I've traveled the world and the country doing theater, all this kind of stuff. There are people that never get this opportunity that you're that you've gotten right off the bat. You need to go. And so he and he's like, I insist that you go. And I've traveled the world. So here's one hundred and eighty thousand frequent flyer miles. OK, for you to go. You just have to go. Um, and so that was the way that I got to be there. I did it horribly wrong. I did it like a stupid, stupid 21-year-old would do it. I brought one suit, and I um, it was too expensive to stay in Cannes when, with the festival going right. on. So I stayed in Nice, which is about an hour away. Um, 
It went by myself. Stayed a couple days in Paris. Took the train down to Nice, which is also just crazy. I'm just in France by myself. Um, and then when I met up with the guys in Cannes, I had my little suit on for the premiere, and I was like, the colors of the movie were black and red, so I had like a black suit and a red tie. And I was like, I'm killing it right now. Um, and then they were like, come to this party, and I was like, okay. Anyway, they were all staying in this amazing villa in Cannes. And so I stayed there with them, like, on a couch for, like, four days. I was supposed to go back to Nice that night for, like, you know, clothes. Right. <laughs> so by the time I left the festival, it was my fourth day in that same suit, just <laughs> drinking everything I could find. And it was it was crazy. So we also got invited to... Um, the big steps, you know, you know, can has the big blue steps that everybody, all the famous, right. really glitzy people get to go walk on. And because our movie did pretty well, we got invited to one of the screenings there. So I borrowed, it was a black tie event. So I borrowed somebody else's black tie. I still got the black suit, white shirt, <laughs> and I got this long black tie and I get up to the gate and there's French security everywhere. And they say it's no, 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 no. Black tie means bow tie. You can't come in. And I was like, oh, this is the worst right. thing ever. And we had a producer, our line producer, who, you know, on the movie is in charge of all the on-the-ground trucks, cameras, like all the logistics that we need to, to have to shoot the movie. Line produced better than anyone in that moment. Came up to me. He's like, I'm so sick of it. We, we don't have time for this. Ties my long black tie into a bow tie. So I'm, <laughs> I have pictures of me there. Looking like an ass. Like it's like the old cowboy movie. Yeah, exactly. Huge. If my I would have looked better had my shirt been ruffled to like go with it. But I had this huge floppy tie and it was it was fun though. I mean, those are the kinds of awesome stories that, that oh, yeah, that's I like, get to have. Yeah. And it it was billboards everywhere, fancy rich people everywhere. That was the year that um Wolf of Wall Street no, not Wolf of Wall Street, um Wall Street two. Okay. Money Never Sleeps came yeah. out. So uh, there was another guy in the movie, Jack Plotnick. Our favorite thing to do is- Jack's been on my show. Yeah, Jack's so great. Such a great guy. He's got a Broadway show in uh, New York right now that's crushing it. See, what's funny, was he was on, It was he was in New York, and then he came back, and then he got to do my show, and he was talking about doing, he had just done the one movie he had done, the independent mm -hmm. movie I think he wrote, and then- um, Oh, was, yeah. Well, a bunch of people were in it. And then he actually was going, he had talked about doing a play in Broadway. Yeah. So that's cool. He's there. It just opened and it's get it's killing it. It's called Disaster and okay. it's a a spoof oh, of Oh, Disaster. Like, yes, I, I saw it on the Today show. I yeah. didn't know, I didn't know that was his He thing. wrote it. Oh, that's funny. I, yeah. I got, now I got to tell my girlfriend, "Hey, you know that show, uh, you know, my guest." Absolutely. Is. I guess brownie points, you know. <laughs> so So he was in he was in rubber with me and our favorite thing to do would be to walk by um all of the giant groups of paparazzi just kind of waiting outside the hotels to see anybody. And that was the year that Wall Street 2 came out. So we would just walk by and go, Shia, Shia, Shia. <laughs> and hundreds of paparazzi would just go whoosh. And then we would go, run away and go. <laughs> see, that's fun. That's, not, that's, that's what's good. It's like, you know, so now I, mean, I do it's that It's fun before. feeling like the bad kids, oh, yeah. like in a fancy it's thing. It's good. Like if I, if I see a production around Burbank, I'm seeing, like, oh, yeah, I, I, Bradley Cooper was just here. Really? Yeah. And I walk <laughs> I away. Uh, so, okay, so now, now you do that movie. Now, now you come back to the States. Mm -hmm. And now, so now, where do you go now? Because you've been to Con, yeah, Can, whatever it's pronounced, right? And so now, what, where do you are you are you getting auditions now? Are you nope? What, okay, so you nobody just cares. <laughs> yeah, so, so what do you do? I mean, how do you start getting auditions? Just were you getting you weren't getting sent out much, or 
No, it was getting sent out a lot. Um, nobody cared. Well, you know, the festival thing is great, but nobody's seen the movie. So the movie didn't come out for nine or ten months after that. So then you just go. So I had this great experience. I felt like a movie star. And then I came back and I was like, oh, yeah, nobody cares. So, so Forgot. Nobody knows. <laughs> so so what do you, when do you start booking stuff? The first thing I booked, um, I got a, I had a three-month period where um, things were going pretty good. And I booked a two-episode arc on a, Nickel, a teen Nickelodeon show called Gigantic, which I, was my first TV gig. Okay. I guess Rubber was my first gig. But this was my first TV gig. And um, that was really cool. It started uh, Meryl Streep's daughter, Grace Gummer, when, uh, and she's doing really great now. Um, so I did that, and then I booked a guest star on Perfect Couples, which is a show that only lasted for one season on uh, NBC, also wonderful people, and then I got Community. So you're sitting there, when you're on the TV set, it must be a lot different from going from a movie about a tire yeah. that turns, which wasn't a high budget, to all of a sudden you're on a Nickelodeon and an NBC, so yeah. I'm sure... There's a big difference between the crafty, um, that <laughs> yeah. you say, and I'm sure it's just different. How were you getting acclimated? Because the movie, especially if this guy was like a DJ, was probably very artsy, new way of like, do that. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're and getting. He's somebody who was definitely open to telling you that the acting was bad. Right. Okay. But yeah. See, now you go into the TV thing, and, he, and they're guest spots. But what I mean is, it was it easy for you to acclimate because it is a different kind of day. It's a different kind of shoot. And you only have your few lines, and you're yeah. under the, you're under the gun because you have six days or how many days, five days to do it. Yeah, um, you know, I think you just have to you just have to hop in and and make your mistakes. The thing the thing that I have always uh, loved about um, TV and movies is that once you're there, I mean, you have the job. You know, you got the job. At this point, it would be too expensive to fire you, so everyone's interested in you doing well. And that's an important thing to to remember so you don't beat yourself up. It's like, okay, everybody wants to help me. When you get a note, it's not a criticism. It's a an adjustment. Um, but you also just have to make your mistakes, you know, and you just have to open yourself to keep trying because the thing that's going to really screw you, um, which I learned in the first day of all of these – you know, beginning projects, it's really nerve wracking because you're close to touching your dream. And that's really scary. Right. You know what I mean? You're, you think that you're about to maybe get what you asked for and you don't know what it even is. Um, so it's important not to like freeze up. And so you just keep kind of throwing out ideas and people kind of guide it. When I did, um, perfect couples, I played a pizza guy and at one scene, and it was directed by a guy named uh, Andy Ackerman, who had done like a hundred. A legend. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at the guy. He did so many Seinfelds. The guy. Yeah, is a almost a hundred Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, started on Cheers. Oh yeah, it's, it's it's he's a legend. Totally. And so, but I didn't know that. I right. was, <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> so I'm I'm there on the show playing a pizza guy, and I'm like, yeah, this is great. Like I, my pizza guy has a relationship with this lead actor, so he's gonna open the door, and we're gonna like, I'm gonna riff. I'm going to riff. It's comedy. People love that shit. Um, <laughs> so we do it a couple times, and as he's closing the door, every time I say something different, because he's trying to hide the deep fact that he's ordered pizza from his wife, and it's one of those, like, your cholesterol's too high. Like, mur, mur, mur. Um, so I'm just, I'm throwing out, like, yeah, next time my, my buddy Leon's going to be here. He's got a crippled hand. Like, don't worry about it. All that stuff. So I did that about three times, 
and was now felt I had been allowed to do it three times. So now I was going to be just going for it, which was definitely not the case. So Andy Ackerman, the legend, comes up and goes uh, with a script in his hand. He goes, going great, huh? I was like, yeah, I, I think so. I'm feeling really good. He's like, yeah, yeah, really funny. Um, we just can we just get it? Can you say what we asked you to say? I was like, and I like withered. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, I, yeah, totally. I was like, oh, oh. So then, uh, but then I mean, you got to learn. You gotta, yeah, exactly. Got to have that thing. I mean, and then you do learn that. Especially in TV, writers... It's that's their medium. It's their medium. It's their words. They have, they're good at it. They have scenes scored out by the words. I mean, they have sometimes cut points in the middle of a word. You know what I mean? If you're going to say something like, you're responsible, it's going to be cut between the R and the E, yep. and they know that. So, you know, hit your mark and say a line. So now when Community came along, mm-hmm. did you was that going to be a one-off? Like just a day. I mean, did you know you would come back because you came back over seasons when yeah. you auditioned? Did you think you were just going to be a, a a guest star per se? I thought it was just a one a one joke thing, and it it grew. It started growing even before I had gotten there, which was weird, and I think it kind of took everybody by a little bit of surprise. It just circumstances happened that way. So, about two episodes before I showed up on screen the first time. They had mentioned a character named Fat Neil, which is a character that I play, um, that didn't have a face. They were walking. They were like, I think the line was, um, we got to get to the cafeteria before Fat Neil eats all the lima beans or something. So it was like Norm's wife on Cheers. Yeah, exactly. It was never, it was the first time it had been mentioned. It wasn't a real person. And then I came in two episodes later to do a scene with John Oliver, um, was just part of the classroom. And he goes, uh, you know, where do we leave off? Fat Neil? And I said, the Bronze Age? And he goes, and also, Neil's okay. You don't have to call me Fat Neil. And then that was it. And then it was just a, it was just a one joke. I didn't even know the other episode had happened because it hadn't aired. I didn't know that they had mentioned it before. And then it was in between that one and the Dungeons & Dragons one, which is the big episode that um, kind of solidified it and launched it was... I was shooting the day where I had the one line while they were writing Dungeons and Dragons. And they have on the lot, they have a closed video feed so that the writers in the writers room can keep an eye on what's going on on the stage. So if, you know, something's going horribly right. wrong, you can go down there. Um so they had it like on a TV like that and they were writing this character that's sad and overweight and depressed and plays Dungeons and Dragons. And I just happened to be playing on their television at the moment that they were writing it. And they were like, that looks like the guy. <laughs> and he's, I mean, they had cast me, but, you know, it was just a one-off thing. So it was like, that looks like that could be an interesting thing. So they called me back to do D&D. And, and I didn't find out until the rap party. D&D went really, really well for me. Um, and I didn't find out in the rap party. Dan Harmon came up to me and was like, the creator of the show and he was like thank god you worked out <laughs> because they didn't know i had one line they they cast me off the look and then gave me a dungeons and dragons episode that was pretty much wall to wall about my character um it was hardly even about the main characters at the time so it's like we really 
took a shot on that, and we're really glad that worked. So now once that, that airs, you know, people watch a show, do people start recognizing you? Because it's it's one of the things, I always say there's so many shows that have, like, certain crowds, per se. Mm-hmm. You know, like people who watch Community are... They're hip. They they, right. they know what they're watching. It's like it's like when they when you, there's an old Marin episode where he goes in with Dave Foley to this this store because some guys cre- was uh, going after Marin saying you suck. And right. Then they all love Dave. Oh, kids in the hall. You know? Yeah. Right. So it's that noticeable. So now I mean, were you starting to get recognized all of a sudden because it, it, you know you recurred. I mean, you were on 14 or 15, 16 episodes. 16 episodes. Yeah. Which which is just start off as a one on and then right. they just call you back and just, I mean how how would they call you though? Would you just sit there and go okay you're gonna be on or what would your agent call you or did you know have a plan of when you would be on and when you wouldn't no no they they did it as they were writing they called um they the show built a really great group of characters that were not part of the main right study group um for the study group to kind of interact with and have rivalries with and it was a lot of actually because the the study group themselves like joel McHale and danny pudi and chevy and all them it was had a seinfeld-esque feeling of like these actually aren't great people right (laughs) they're not that nice and they're very entitled and all that kind of stuff so the surrounding characters were all very sweet and um the show used to call them the muppets so i was part of the you know we got the we got jeff and annie and pierce and and then all the muppets so that was when we would all know to come back and like fill out a scene and do that kind of stuff so they would just um use it to populate the world every now and then so now what would happen with people when they start recognizing you? That must be odd. And just also because they they did they know you as Fat Neil. Yeah. And so it's like it must be like people must go with, hey, Fat Neil. Like, you know how people get. Well, it was cool. You know, I again, I it's all really happened for me in a way that has been really nice. I, I didn't love the idea of playing a character named Fat Neil. Oh, no one would. You know what I mean? It's not it wasn't my favorite <laughs> thing. But, you know, at that point, you got to kind of catches catch can and so that was one thing that was really great even doing the one-off and then getting dungeons and dragons and seeing how they address that which the whole episode was about this kid who's really depressed and the group comes to play dungeons and dragons with him and make him feel good about himself and there's a moment where you, you realize that joel McHale's character was the one that made up the name fat neil and fat neil gets to say why would you say that to me that's Right. You know, and so that that was worth the whole thing. I didn't know that when I got the part on the one-off, but that was just a gift from writers letting that be a thing. Um, and then also my first line being just like, you know, Neil's fine. You don't need to call me that. So when people started to recognize me, they would go, oh, my God, you're fat Neil. Oh, I, I, I mean, regular Neil. Right. So it, it made an impact, which is great. I mean, people sat there, and that's, that's all you can ask for. Absolutely. And they, you know, I got, I got... I've never seen myself on TV. I've never seen somebody like that on TV before. I felt like I was watching you, I, me. I love D- uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um, and so I was kind of I was starting to have all these actor friends, and I was really feeling myself. I was trying to trying to live the life a little bit, and um, I went to a party at the uh, Roosevelt Hotel once um, with somebody who was a, a we had a mutual friend, and they were much more famous than me, and whatever but nobody cared at all and i was like well, I'm, I'm on tv too <laughs> um and then the next day i went to see dan Harmon's show at meltdown comics on sunset and i was like a king okay 
You know what I mean? So you have that thing where it's like you walk into a comic book store in LA and they're like, oh my God, you are Neil from Community. And it's it's awesome. It's cool. And when you know that, it was such a great way to have it like back-to-back days. Oh, yeah. We go like, okay. Not everyone's going to love me here, but but man, I'm a god here. And, and yeah, and I don't need to be going to you know <laughs> hotel parties or whatever. Screw I'm over it. Screw yeah. that. These are the people that love what you do, and those are the people you should be with, I think. So now you're, you're run on community. You're doing that. Now, now, how all of a sudden now, how do you transition into going from Pat Neal to mm-hmm. a drama? Because, I mean, CSI Cyber is a, yeah. a drama. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a serious show. Yeah, it's, the, it's weird. I always say that um, because Neil was so depressed on community, I went from being the least funny character on one of the funniest shows on TV to like the funny character on one of the biggest dramas on TV, which is really weird. Now, how did that, that when you, how did that audition become too? And also as an actor, if you knew it was for CSI, mm-hmm. you know this much. You know, if you're auditioning for a CSI or an NCIS on CBS, right. this show is going to get picked up. If you're bringing in a cast of Patricia Arquette right. and Ted Danson, you know what? It's going to go. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and, and he came from the other CSI. He left and came on yep. this. So now, how did that whole audition come in? What was your process? Was it a long process or did they know you from community or how did they even get you in the door to play? You know, it's more of a serious part. I think it's, you know, I think it's um, a credit to the representation and, and things like that. If they can get you in. I, I don't really know the ins and outs of that kind of thing where I just show, sort of show up. But um the other thing too is that once you're around for long enough, um, you just audition and audition and audition and audition, and most of the times you just get the material the night before, so you really just have to do the best you can with it. Um, there's almost not a lot you can do with it, so you try to give some broad strokes. So anyway, I had an audition. It was in the middle of summer. I had an audition in like three months because summer's super dead all the time, and this CSI audition came up the night before it was like 10 pages one of which was a really great scene like the last scene was really great where um Kromitz whose name was Grummet at the time talks to Patricia's character and says like I'm lonely and I only feel connected to a computer and you know I, I work 18 hours a day because who would have me out in the real world and so that was really great character stuff and I felt like I knew that guy I felt like I knew that feeling um, I don't live in that feeling, but I, I have had it and I, right. I knew it. Um, but then the other three were like six pages of the tech stuff that we have to do. <laughs> I was like, shit, I, I just don't, I just can't learn it. I just don't think I, I just don't think I can. So I went into the audition. I was like, oh, let's just do it. Cause that's how it is. I mean, you audition for so many things and you lose so many parts that eventually you stop going oh, the CSI franchise, this is going to change my life. You just got to give the audition your all, and if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So I had, I didn't really think about it. So I get there, and uh, the casting director, Carol Kritzer, was really sweet and more forthcoming than most casting directors, which was really helpful. It was like half good and half awful because the scene where I get to be emotional, I felt really connected to. The other three were like, oof. So, but she was really great. She's like, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to call you back 
because this last scene was was really good and I really appreciated it and it was I think you might be right for this I think you're what they're looking for but you have to go home and learn those other three scenes like you have to make tech talk your thing because that's the only way you're going to get this part and then it just kind of went on went on from there well then you're focused because you're going okay well now I know there's a shot yeah, yeah exactly they're going okay you know they could have just said screw you right you know not but they're saying hey you know what it's like it's like a guy who can play, who plays baseball who's a, a crappy fielder but hits well you know right then they go okay well you go learn to field and then you're you're gonna start right so you sat there at least you know what you had to work on at least you don't have to sit there and they say okay we're calling you back and you can do it all again totally so now that you go home and just rehearse vigorously just just paste up and down my driveway and just set it and set it and set it and set it what I do um not that anybody cares about my process but <laughs> they do i was i <laughs> it's funny how many interviews i listen to with actors because i'm just interested and when they get to the process part i go nobody cares but they tell do. tell me the explosion story this is cooper talk they, oh, they okay, care good, they good. care um it's not even that interesting what i do is i have to learn the words first so it's very like bop, 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 bop. This is, I can finally say them all in order. And then now I have them and I can work them now. Now I can find out what they mean. Now I can start really breaking them up into moments and things like that. Um, but I have to just first. So that's what I did. I, I just memorized them like they were like they were words in the dictionary and then went back and, and tried to figure it out. So then you get in and then you nail it. Yes and no. I nailed it enough to keep coming back, which is about all you can ask for. <laughs> to keep coming back and getting the shot, I I did well enough for that. My my big hurdle, I had two big hurdles. Um, the first one was they were interested in somebody else, somebody more famous, which is always gonna happen. So, um, not always. Maybe I'll be that guy. But um, I was good enough to keep being in the conversation, but they really wanted this more famous guy. Um, and our showrunner, Pam Vise, just really fought for me, But my, which I am obviously incredibly appreciative of. Um, my other big problem was there were a handful of people within CBS that were absolutely convinced that I had a speech impediment. Okay. And, and two or three of my auditions... The final one being one that I did on video, um, because I had already gone to New York. I was supposed to find out and whatever. Um, but at least two or three of the auditions were to find out if I actually had a speech impediment. Oh, and my manager was calling me. He's like, they think you talk weird, dude. I was like, really? You talk fine. I know. I was like, <laughs> and it happened a couple times. I was like, okay, well, let me go back in and do it again. So I did it again. And they were like, yeah, they still think they think you talk weird. They were sending my videos to New York and to L.A. and to all the different places that that CBS has offices. And I was kind of freaking out about it. I, I wasn't freaking out. I wasn't nervous. I felt like I was going insane because I, I guess in a world where somebody has a speech impediment, they don't really know. And so I asked my manager, I was like, <laughs> you have to be honest with me. We've been friends for f- six years. Do I talk weird? Is this just something that nobody's, that everyone's been too polite to say? He's like, I can't tell. I was like, I feel like I'm going crazy. 
um, no, speech impediment. What? So anyway, <laughs> what it was, we finally figured it out. And I was in New York. I had already left um, because I had this trip planned. And I was standing on the street, and they're like, they really, they just can't get over it. And it happens the most in this scene. It's like this one bit. And I go, it just clicked. Exactly what that is. At the very beginning of the scene, it says in the stage directions, uh, Grummets stands in a Walmart electronics section eating a hot dog. I was miming eating a hot dog. Okay. <laughs> and I just it could not figure it out for two weeks. They're like, they really like you. They just think that America won't be able to understand you. And it just clicked. I was like, all right, let me do one more tape. And I just won't do my stupid hot dog bit that I've done from the very beginning. Because the thing with auditions, too, is that, like, if it's working, it's working. Just, right. you know, nobody wants you to change up your exactly. approach halfway through your audition process. So I stuck with that hot dog, thought it was funny. I was like, yeah, well, everything, uh, uh, everything uh, we're going to need. And somebody's like, that dude talks weird. So so you finally, you get through that. And so that, I finally got the part. I sent a video that was nice and clean. And you get cast. Now, how mm -hmm. stoked are you? I totally cried. I was in New York. I, once I sent that clean tape, they went, oh, okay, he talks like a normal human. And I got the part. And it was, I found out at like 12 o'clock in the, I found out about midnight in New York. And... I had maybe already settled into a cocktail or two, so I was really ready to feel. And uh, and I just, yeah, I cried. I was so, because we knew it was being picked up for at least 13 episodes. Right. We knew it was going to go. It wasn't like, okay, I got a pilot. Now I got to get to work and, and really see if it's going to even be what I think it is. It was like, you are doing 13 episodes as a regular on um, a television show on uh, CSI. By the way, just a small footnote to that last story. Still somebody to this day convinced that I talk weird. I had a um, speech I had a speech therapist. They paid for a speech therapist to come to set for three weeks. What idiots. I had four I had four meetings um, in my dressing room in between takes where they I'm like, mm, ah, that's e, so funny. I. It's like I, it's so weird. So now what's it like? You're on the series, but I mean you're working with I mean, honestly, sitcom-wise, uh, one of the biggest stars ever. Well, Ted, Ted didn't join until season two. Okay, so but you work still with Trisha Arquette. Yeah, and Peter McNichol. Yeah, who, who was Ali McBeal. Who was a legendary, yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, what's it like when all of a sudden, you know, you've been in Community, and Community was a great show, you know, and then Ken Jeong hadn't really been to come Ken Jeong right. yet. But now Joel you're, was still becoming, becoming Joel. Yeah, yeah, now you're, you're coming into, she's a damn Arquette. I mean, you know, it's like... True, you know, right. true romance. You know, it's, it's like, I mean, what is that like when you go on the set? Were you intimidated or were you just ready to hit the big leagues? I, this sounds like a made up story, but I was, I took a phone call. I stepped out and took a phone call in the middle of seeing Boyhood in the movie theater about the show. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and whether or not it was going to, you know, if what stage of auditioning I was in or whatever, but I was watching that movie and yeah, she was, she won the Oscar right after we finished shooting season one. Through the course of season one, she won everything else, um, every other award. So it was intimidating, for sure. I had had I had had some good experiences though. I did a show called Royal Pains with Henry Winkler. Yeah, which I heard he's amazing. He's just the nicest, the nicest guy. Um, so 
yeah, I was I was completely nervous, but it went away really really quickly. And not to mention, no no um uh nothing to shake a stick at James Vanderbeek and, and oh, yeah. Bauer. You forget, you, you know? Yeah, you forget. Yeah, Vanderbeek. I mean, it's like he's Vanderbeek. I mean, that's totally. Like, I mean, they're, they're like, all kind of legends. Yeah, yeah. and so, so and then me yeah. <laughs> for some reason. So now now the show becomes popular. Now, do you have a uh, a lot of computer people coming hook? You know, reaching out to you that you may. I mean, you, I know it's nothing. A character. So, so I mean, how do you? I have a friend who does a. His name's John Matta. He does mm-hmm. this napkin thing, and it's a huge hit now. He does a napkin every day. A napkin every he, day. He draws a napkin. Oh, oh, a oh. Thing. And he has all these artists hitting him up, and he he just did it because his wife was sick, and he just would do something to, to pass time. Right. So how do you respond to the people who? Because they probably sit there and they. I mean, that's what people probably think, or if they see you out, they probably you probably can't go into a Best Buy without going, hey, uh, hey, should <laughs> I get the Acer or this? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, well, how do you how do you react? Do you just tell them, hey, I don't know this. Do you Google it to give them an answer? If people send you, I I try to be as honest as as possible. I mean, you can kind of see their, you can kind of see them deflate a little bit. Like they really want you to know. Right. And I I just don't. I mean, I've learned conceptual things from the show. Um, I can't do anything with the computer. Like the actual physical. Crummitz's thing is that um, he's all hardware. Um, he's the hardware guy. So he's the guy who always breaks open the computer and takes out the components and, you know, washes the blood off it. And I don't know how to do any of that. But But we learn things like, you know, changing your passwords and setting up firewalls and encryption and like this encryption debate is really interesting that's happening now. Right. Um, especially just because of the show that we, that we work on. Um, and we play FBI characters, FBI agents. So yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, it's so, pretty hands-on. Yeah. There are a lot of people on Twitter who are saying that they should just call the CSI cyber team <laughs> in because apparently we can do anything and we do. So I, yeah, you know, I vague vagaries, but Nothing crazy. Now, do you know if you're picked up for next season, or is that, or do you know, or we don't know yet. See? May May 18th is when CBS is gonna like lay out their whole their whole endeavor. So, what's that like as an actor? Because I, I always think like for one, you have to be happy that you got the part and you work with these great people. Yeah. But two, it's like you gotta say, hey man, I, I really want to come back. You know, that, that's that's some good. That's 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 my change, baby. That's yeah, my, that's yeah. my coin. You know, I want us to get to a few up, a few like two more seasons. So I, we I don't can have be the on, house yet. Yeah, we, yeah, we, <laughs> we we can be on TBS or uh, or every single day because right. find them. I mean, so what's it like for you? Just, I mean, do you have? Can you not audition for stuff till you know, or what happens? Um, I th- I'm in a little bit of a holding pattern for sure. I'm trying to look at it as a well earned vacation and not you can't go do anything. Um. They've always been really good, though. Um, it's not it's not critical if I was going to go to a guest star or something, then then I don't think they'd hold me back. But they we don't know about the fate of the show, so I can't really hop on to another show as a regular because we just don't. I'm not really available, you know. So um, yeah, it's weird. It's it. I mean, for me, and I've just been thinking about this a lot in the last week or so, for sure, because it's getting. I've been. I made my way through Redbox, and I've right. made my way through the books that I was reading, and I've, you know, I'm all caught up on all the kind of time sucking things that I I wanted to do. So it's um, yeah, it's just sort of a weird spot to to be in, and not the least of which the the money is amazing, and it's you can't really lie about that. You get to be on TV, and it's it's great. 
Um, I think with our group, we bonded so so well together that a large part of it, at least for me, is just wanting to come back and, right. and work more. You know, it's what there are people who get into this business in the creative side that want to make their millions. But I think most of them, most of us, get into it because they want to act. And so I miss going to work every day. You know what I mean? Like at a certain point, it becomes about the friends that I've made and the work that we've done. And a lot of people, a lot of guys on the crew, especially who've done far more incredible things than I have or probably at this point will ever get to do um, just by the nature of their work. We're like, this is a great group. Like this is, I could settle in here right, for that... a long, long time. Like this is a fun, a fun place to go to work. So I miss it. You know, I mean, I was, I was thinking about um, in the last few days as I was thinking about this interview was he's going to ask me what I'm doing. And I'm going to say, you know, being bummed, I'm not at work. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure that is, but it's also, you know, yeah, you have things to look forward. And also now if, if something happens that it doesn't get picked up, well, you know, at least you have the juice of being on a, on two different shows, which is for you right. is great. Cause you can go back into comedy or you can go into drama. Yeah. And so that, I mean, I that's, hope. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's the thing. It's like, not like you're just pigeonholed. Like, Oh, he can only be the fat Neil, regular Neil, or, you know, you, you can go to do either one. Yeah. I'm so, hoping, but that's good. But then just so you know, you just chill out. You play. You watch some Netflix. You watch exactly. Little, uh, you catch up on House of Cards. Yeah, if you if you have Amazon, you watch The Mad Dogs, which is a great show. Is it really? I haven't it's seen that. Great cast. It has. Uh, it's from uh, co-produced by Sean Ryan, who created The Shield. Oh, uh, cool. It's, it's got a great cast, and it's, there's stuff you can do. Yeah, and there's plenty do, out there. And you can go to a comic. Uh, you can go to Meltdown and be a god. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. you sit there and get. Free I'm just gonna go shake hands for a while yeah, and take some pictures. And, you know, and now you know, watch. I bet you're gonna start getting asked to come to conventions. Maybe they'll, they'll do that. I haven't yet, but but you will. But I would love that. That would be fun. Yeah. I have um, I have a really good friend on uh, The Walking Dead. Let's see. And uh, he is all over the place with the conventions. It's really cool. It's cool. Yeah. I, I mean, need to get into like a horror thing. Yeah. Well, or, you know, community will start getting conventions. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. So, so we've got to wrap up in just a few. Uh, now, no. do, 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 you, do, you, do you tweet? I do tweet. Let's give you Absolutely. Info. It's um, at Charlie underscore Koontz. Uh, and my name is C-H-A-R-L-E-Y underscore K-O-O-N-T-Z. And it's the same for my uh, Instagram. And do you tweet a lot? I try to tweet a lot. Okay. Good. Yeah. Instagram a lot? Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. I want to thank you for coming on. Awesome. Thank you, man. And people say, yeah, please follow him also. Uh, follow me on Instagram. It's Cooper Talk one because there's a Cooper Talk. I don't know why. Uh, go to my Twitter. It's Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. I tweet a lot of jokes. I just try to have fun. Uh, you can go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have, uh, wow, I just posted episode 490 today. Oh, my so God. You can go up there and check it out. Or you can send me an email. Uh, Cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm always looking for new sponsors, so send me an email. We'll talk about that because, you know, I can use the extra cash. It's always good. And uh, iTunes and Stitcher, one word. It's just one word, Cooper Talk. You can do that. And as I say, send me an email. Tell me who you want to hear. And go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. You remember when I had that health problem a few years ago and I was in the hospital for five days, five days in the cardiac unit. And I had to change my eating habits. So I wrote a cookbook. It's called Stop the Salt. It's 120 easy recipes. There's no pictures. So you're not going to get intimidated because you look at pictures and you go, oh my God, I can't cook that. No pictures, 120 recipes, sandwiches, stuff like that. The ingredients are basic. It's easy. It's like almost like one plate cooking. 
and basically you go in, there's no cumin. You know, if you don't have cumin, don't worry, you don't need cumin. So go in there and you can go buy it at Barnes and Noble or Amazon.com. Uh, if you buy it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I will sign it for you. So do that. Follow, follow Charlie underscore Kuntz. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Keep listening. Next week's all great show. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.